Section 23 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Records and Early Life of de Vere, Part 1. The Reputation of the Earl of Oxford Horatio, I am dead. Thou livest. Report me and my cause aright to the unsatisfied. If ever thou didst hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2 an uplifted shadow somehow lies across his memory. Dr. Grossart Authorities The biographical records in the succeeding chapters are taken chiefly from the Dictionary of National Biography. Historical Recollections of Noble Families by Arthur Collins The Great Lord Burley by Martin Hume The House of Cecil by G. Ravenscroft Dennis Histories of Essex by Morant and Wright, the Hatfield Manuscripts, and Calendars of State Papers. 1. The Reputation of the Earl of Oxford Following the general scheme of the investigation as outlined at the beginning of this work, it will be well to recall at this point the nature of the phase with which we are at present occupied, and the exact stage of it now reached. The fifth step being to proceed from the man chosen to the works of Shakespeare, in order to see to what extent the man is reflected in the works, the comparison of the two sets of writings just concluded forms the natural introduction to this phase of the inquiry. Continuing this step, our next business must be to examine, in whatever detail possible, the life and circumstances of the man, in order to ascertain how far they, too, relate themselves to the contents of and the task of producing the shakespearean plays and poems in entering upon this series of biographical chapters we must remind the reader that the object of this work is twofold to prove our case and to help towards a fuller and more accurate view of the life and personality of the earl of oxford here our task is one of special difficulty for our theory presupposes a man who had deliberately planned his self-concealment our material is bound therefore to be as scanty as he could make it and at the outset probably misleading we shall therefore be under the necessity of reconstructing a personality from the most meagre of data with the added disadvantage of a large amount of contemporary misrepresentation which it will be necessary to correct one naturally asks why the author of the great dramas should have wished to throw a veil over his identity as he did and the strange thing about the matter is this that with the shakespeare sonnets before us we should have been so slow in framing this question and answering it satisfactorily for not merely in an odd sentence but as the burden of some of his most powerful sonnets he tells us in the plainest of terms that he was one whose name had fallen into disrepute and who wished that it should perish with him no longer mourn for me when i am dead then you shall hear the surly sullen bell give warning to the world that i am fled 
from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell nay if you read this line remember not the hand that writ it my name be buried where my body is and live no more to shame nor me nor you or i shall live your epitaph to make or you survive when i in earth am rotten from hence your memory death cannot take although in me each part will be forgotten your name from hence immortal life shall have though i once gone to all the world must die alas tis true i have gone here and there and made myself a motley to the view thence comes it that my name receives a brand your love and pity doth the impression fill which vulgar scandal stamped upon my brow when to all this we find him adding the fear that every word doth almost tell my name it is made as clear as anything can be that he was one who had elected his own self-effacement and that disrepute was one if not the principal motive we may if we wish question the sufficiency of reasonableness of the motive that however is his business not ours the important point for us is that he has by his sonnets disclosed the fact that he shakespeare was one who was concealing his real name and that the motive he gives adequate or not is one which unmistakably would apply to the earl of oxford and would not apply in the same literal manner to any one else to whom it has been sought to attribute the shakespeare dramas if the earl of oxford had filled an exalted place in general estimation it ought to have worked against the theory of authorship we are advancing that he was one in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes is what we should have expected and is therefore an element of evidence in confirmation of our theory under the stratfordian and baconian views mystifying interpretations have had to be read into the utterances just quoted in spite of their intense reality and genuine autobiographical ring they have been treated as cryptic poetry or mere dramatic prose and one of our greatest difficulty will be to combat the non-literal constructions forced upon these poems in the proper place we shall have to show that their contents are as real and literal as the spirit and temper of the works suggest puzzling shakespeare could undoubtedly be as in the will sonnets a hundred and thirty five and a hundred and thirty six where he is obviously dealing in enigmas the curious thing is that he has been read seriously and literally when in a playful mood by the same people who have treated passionate heart-wrung utterances as mere freaks of fancy when moving on the plane of experience his conceptions attain a definiteness unequalled in poetry whilst there has probably never been a writer capable of securing a more precise correspondence between a thought and its expression when therefore he tells us in so many words that vulgar scandal had robbed him of his good name and that although he believed his work would be immortal he wished his name to be forgotten we are quite entitled to take his own word for it and to demand no further motive for the adoption of a disguise no mere nom de plume could have been so successful as his adoption of a mask its success for over three hundred years will probably be a matter of astonishment for many generations to come 
had these sonnets been published by their author during his own lifetime they would have been absurd from the point of view of the particular contents we have just been considering imagine any man publishing or allowing the publication under his own name of documents in which he specifically states that he wished his name to be buried with his body it is equally absurd to suppose that their author permitted the issue of documents implying that william shakespeare was but a mask they were however published during the lifetime of all the men to whom it has been sought to attribute their authorship william shakespeare francis bacon william stanley and roger manners but after the death of edward de vere the particular sonnets seemed to belong to a date at which oxford's fortunes were at about their lowest and when the motive assigned for hiding his name would be most applicable the works being published under the mask would then be the two long poems published in fifteen ninety three and fifteen ninety four we do not maintain that the motive assigned in the sonnets was the only one that operated by the time that the mask was employed again after an interval of four years during which some of the plays had appeared anonymously there are evidences that oxford was making efforts to retrieve his position socially as well as financially when plays were being published under shakespeare's name oxford was seeking to regain favor with the queen and setting family influences to work to obtain for himself the position of governor of wales needless to say to have appeared at the time in the role of dramatic author would have been completely fatal to any chances he may have had for in those days dramatic authorship was considered hardly respectable and oxford especially having incurred his disgrace in the first instance by deserting the court for a bohemian association with actors and playwriters could only hope to recover his social position and secure an appropriate official appointment by being seen as little as possible in such connections after oxford's death his widow a lady of private means assisted by her brother continued the struggle to recover for her son henry the eighteenth earl of oxford the prestige which had been lost to the family by the extraordinary career of his father a legal case that arose out of this is a recognized landmark in the history of law and shows clearly that the recovery of what had been lost had become a settled object of family policy even supposing then that they may not have considered themselves under a moral or contracted obligation to continue the secrecy it would hardly have been in harmony with their general policy to have discontinued it although we have put forward these considerations with regard to motives we must make it clear that no obligation to furnish motives rests upon an investigator in such a case as this motives are sometimes altogether impenetrable objective facts and the evidence of the truth of such facts form the proper material for inquiries like the present from the biographer's point of view however all these considerations constitute a double difficulty we have first to surmount the obstacles which an able intellect bent on secrecy would himself interpose between himself and the public and then we must penetrate the mists of disrepute which he assures us had gathered round his name before this can be properly done many years must elapse and many minds must be interested in it the correction of an erroneous estimate of the historic personality being one of the slowest of human processes 
we make here only a first simple effort in that direction no one who is able to appreciate humanity's debt to shakespeare can under any circumstances regard him as a man who has merited abiding dishonor the world has taken to its heart men like robert burns and moliere whose lives have fallen far short of the pattern we could have wished for them and if edward de vere is as we have every reason to believe the real shakespeare the world will not be slow to allow the great benefits he has conferred upon mankind to atone for any shortcomings that may be found in him our task at the present however is to see him as he was in so far as his character and the events of his life have a bearing upon our problem everything that comes before us in the form of mere traditional view inference or impression must be rigidly separated from ascertained facts and even these will need to be accepted cautiously and interpreted from the point of view of one great dominating possibility that of his being endowed with the heart and genius of shakespeare and of having produced the shakespeare literature if for example the earl of oxford was only a son-in-law of lord burleigh's who had achieved nothing more noteworthy than the writing of a few short lyrics and had spent the best years of his life in fruitless amusement with a company of play-actors then we must judge him mainly by the part he played in the life of burleigh if however the earl of oxford was shakespeare then he towers high above lord burleigh and we shall have to judge burleigh very largely by the part he played in the life of oxford or if in the domain of poetry he is chiefly to be remembered as the man who called his rival philip sidney a puppy we shall have to judge him by his bearing towards sidney if however oxford was shakespeare gifted with all shakespeare's penetration into human nature our interest will lie in discovering how far sidney may have merited the epithet again if as we shall see in the case we find that as a young man he begged to join the army when that was refused him he begged to be allowed to join the navy when that in turn was refused he begged to travel abroad but when though by this time he was twenty-four years of age and married that was also refused so that he seemed condemned to spend his life hanging about the court and finding the court life irksome ran away to the continent only to be brought back before he had had a chance of seeing anything of life we may be able to agree with those who speak of him as being wayward if we suppose him to have been incapable and an intellectual mediocrity but if we suppose him possessed of the genius of shakespeare with shakespeare's capacity for experiencing life and all that capacity as so much driving force within him urging him to seek experience for life indeed if we take into account nothing more than what is positively known of his powers as revealed in his poems and dramatic record we shall be much more inclined to consider him a badly used man the victim of most unfavorable circumstances and manifest injustice with a very genuine grievance against the guardian and father-in-law burley who had so persistently thwarted him finally if remembering the character borne by the play-actors of the time as described in the passage we have quoted from dean church we believe him to have wasted the best years of his life in intimate useless association with them we shall be inclined to see in his conduct a manifestation of dissoluteness and to acquiesce in burleigh's statement that he had been enticed away by lewd persons 
if on the other hand we believe that oxford was shakespeare and that during these years he was hard at work seriously but in a measure secretly engaged in the activities that have produced at once the greatest dramas and the finest literature that england boasts then the facts have a totally new light thrown upon them and admit of a vastly different interpretation for the secrecy in which his work as a whole is involved would surely be maintained towards those who were out of sympathy with him amongst whom we can certainly place his father-in-law and probably his wife all of which seems clearly alluded to in sonnet forty eight how careful was i when i took my way each trifle under truest bars to thrust that to my use it might unused stay from hands of falsehood in sure wards of trust we shall avoid therefore all unauthenticated stories which seem to have had their roots in personal animosity such particulars as are narrated in the dictionary of national biography that a certain man's story that the earl did so and so but that it is not confirmed and was warmly denied by the very man whom he was reported to have injured is not biography it serves to show however that he was the victim of false and unscrupulous calumny when therefore we find great admirers of philip sidney like fulke greville sidney's biographer promulgating impossible stories about projected assassinations and another antagonist making almost in so many words the same false charges that oliver makes against orlando in as you like it we begin to realize the type of men with whom we are dealing what freedoms the group of court adventurers to whom oxford was clearly hostile had taken with his name and reputation and how little reliance is to be placed generally upon their records either of their friends or of their enemies it is unfortunate then that the names which predominate in the article upon which we are dependent for so many of the facts of oxford's life are those of people antagonistic to him and most of the facts bear evidence of having come to us through these unfriendly channels anything which bears the mark of burley fulke greville or raleigh the true type of the picturesque but unscrupulous adventurer of those days must be suspect in so far as it touches edward de vere and anything which research may be able to recover that shall furnish us with the names and the opinions of his friends about the court and more important still his dealings with men of letters and with playwrights and actors will be invaluable as tending to furnish us with a truer view of the man so far as we can make out up to the present however his friends seem to have respected loyally his desire for personal oblivion and have remained silent about him thus of course allowing free currency to all that his enemies have been able to circulate to his discredit as this is not intended to be a complete biography facts which do not appear relevant to the argument either for or against it and which from some other consideration might necessitate lengthy discussion will for the most part be omitted note to illustrate again the curious way in which evidence has fallen into our hands we would draw attention to the above reference to oliver in as you like it when we came across the murderous charges made against oxford by charles arundel the first thing that seemed to stand out was the name charles and an evident vulgarity in the man which brought charles the wrestler of as you like it to the mind being somewhat rusty at the moment in reference to subordinate details of the play the next thing 
was to look up the parts dealing with Charles the wrestler Only of course to find the same charges that Charles Arundel made against Oxford being insinuated by Oliver into the mind of Charles the wrestler and so the parts of the mosaic keep fitting in the jesting threats of touchstone in the same play may therefore furnish the explanation of the charges made against oxford for practical joking could hardly be above the dignity of the writer of some of shakespeare's comedies who according to his own confession had made himself a motley to the view end of note end of section 23